Good morning. It's a joy to be able to worship together with you this morning, to be able to sing praises uh, to our God together. Ray, thank you for, uh, for leading us in that effort this morning and uh, for the prayers, for the time of communion, all the things that has been such a joy. My brother and I, um, ever since he became a minister, which has been really fun because it, those of you who know my brother know he's older. Um, usually the younger brother doesn't get very many opportunities to really just say, I have experience in this over you. Then my brother becomes a minister. I'm like, all right. <laughs> but the thing is, what I've really enjoyed is our conversations have changed and enhanced and have done some really neat things for our relationship. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, with that, but we were talking the other day in one of our conversations, and uh, we were we were talking about um, just family stories and dynamics of things and how we responded to them growing up. And it's always interesting to hear different ways that someone from the same experience, you know, same parents and same situation, sees it completely different. Um, and, and you know, my brother and I couldn't see our childhood much, much uh, more differently than we do. I mean, we definitely see it differently. But we got to laughing with several things that we kind of the thought that came to mind was, my family is weird. I was convinced of that. Now, I, did I hear an amen? <laughs> well, if you know my family, you know it's true. But the thing is, what I've, what I'm convinced of is every one of us comes from a pretty weird family. Now, you don't think it's weird. You think it's normal. It's your experience. It's how you grew up. It's everything as normal. But some, maybe I should ask this. When, how old were you, or when was it, that you found out your family was weird? I mean, maybe you knew it all the way from the get-go. Maybe it was one of your friends coming over whenever you were in junior high or high school, and you're like, man, your family's weird. You're like, oh, we're pretty normal, I think. For me, it's when I get married. My wife steps into the family and she's just like, y'all look kind of weird. I said, so is your family. She's like, you know what? Maybe we all are. And the thing is, it's true. We all have our weirdnesses. We all have our idiosyncrasies. We all have our different ways of going about things that make our own experience. And we're pretty sure that our experience is normal because it's our experience. But the thing is, our experience may not be someone else's experience, hence the name our experience. It is ours. Now this is fine whenever it just plays out in, in, in certain areas, but whenever it comes to other areas of saying, hey, my experience needs to dictate your experience. My normal needs to be your normal too. Then we start having some issues. We start having some clashing. Don't believe me? Just start a discussion among, uh, among a group of people heading to a ball game or heading uh, towards a potluck saying, what condiment should go on the hot dog? You're about to have a fight. I mean, because we all have our opinions here and we all have what is normal practice. I'm not going to get into what my wife does because that just is weird. But the thing is, we all have our normal things, and it's our perceived normal, because normal is highly overrated, but our perceived normal is what dictates a lot of our life. 
In fact, you add the perceived normal to matters of faith, and now it becomes even more interesting. Because now we have things like righteous behavior, and we even have some, some sort of scripture proof that back up my experience, my normal. And what we have proved in Christianity is if my normal and your normal don't look the same, then you've got to be wrong. Consider this for a second. When you think about the experience that we just had with the Lord's Supper, your experience with this, your normal, what comes to mind? Is this something very similar to what we just experienced? You have church building with rows of people all facing the back of the head in front of them, except for a few. And then we have one man lead a prayer. Other men gather around a, a symbolic table. For some, it may be they gather behind it. My brother and I would always laugh that there was also uh, there was a communion walk and stand. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but you watch guys and how they walk normally and then how they walk when they serve communion, it's different. We have our walk. It's very, I mean, we are proper with this. And then the way we stand, it's the communion stance. You might get a few that hold their hands behind, but for the most part, don't, what do you do with your hand? You hold them. I was taught this. I was trained that this is normal. This is how it looks. And then we pass out these trays and we take little cups you take a, a sip, or first you get the bread, obviously, and so you get this, this cracker that sometimes you have to break, sometimes you just, it's already cut up for you. You take a little bit, and then it's silent. Don't you dare look around. I'm saying a lot of this tongue-in-cheek, and I'm not meaning that what we do is bad. Please don't hear that. All I'm saying is that there is a perceived normal that I want to question, See, whenever I think of our normal experience, I wonder how much of our normal experience is similar to the first century church. When you think of how they practiced the Lord's Supper, how they partook of the Lord's Supper, do you think it was like the way that we do it, or do you think it was radically dissimilar? I want to talk about that. In fact, this whole series, we're going to be starting a series that is going to be looking at the Lord's Supper. One of my favorite pieces of our worship service, and I think rightfully so, and believe me, it outranks preaching, even for the preacher, all right? I love the time of communion. There's so much that goes on there, but we're going to be looking at really what is going on, and in this series, not only are we going to be looking at it, uh, theological understanding, we are also going to change a few things of how we partake of it. This is, this is your warning shot. Starting next week, we're going to be looking at different ways to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's not meant to throw anyone off or to, you know, to make it not feel normal. Well, yeah, it is to not feel normal. Normal to not feel holy or sacred. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I want us to see how holy and sacred this time truly is and what it is there for. So we are, for this series, we're going to be diving into that. We're also, our small groups and even the group that meets here at the building are going to dive further into study starting next week about this series. And so it's all going to be connected, growing together. The thing is, there is a difference in the way that we partake of the Lord's Supper and how they partook of it. And I, I categorize it in two different fields. 
It's altar versus table. See, the altar is the place where you have the sacrifices, and it's a solemn event. It's an individual event and often couched in silence. The table, well, you know how tables work, don't you? They're not typically pretty silent. And if they are, something's up. Mama ain't happy. Someone's in trouble. But usually, Thanksgiving table set before you. You can't get the people quiet, even if you wanted to. You go to our potlucks. How many times does it take for us if we got a lot of people in the gym saying, hey, hey, everyone, listen up, listen up. We've got an announcement to make. And we're all talking. These are two different ideas. And I believe that one informs the other, but they are different. While the altar is about God's redemptive process, the table is about God's desire for communion. That God desires and always has desired a community of fellowship. In fact, you can uh, point this out from the very beginning. Genesis 1, 1 through 5 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light, and, and, and it was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness, called the light day and the darkness night. And the evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day. Now you may be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with communion? Let me explain. We can continue reading that for six days, God created everything. And in fact, in the, in the account, we can read what he created we can read when he created it. We can even read how he created it. But you want to know what we have is not as clear? It's the last question. Why? Why did God create? What was the purpose? Was he forced by some other being to create this universe? Well, no. Was creation or even humanity just so deserving to be created? Well, no. Maybe God was lacking something. Maybe, maybe God was lonely. He needed a little company, and so he said, let's make creation. Well, no. In fact, what we find out, the more that we study, the more that we actually read the story of God we, and understand the, the nature of God, is that he wasn't lacking anything in creation. In fact, he created because he wanted to share something that he was already experiencing. In a nutshell, let me put it this way. Creation was an act of God's unmerited love and, to, and a desire to share what he already had in himself. So let me explain that. Verse 26 of Genesis 1 says this. Then God said, let us make human beings in our own image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the wild animals, and it goes on talking about the creation of humans. Who is God talking to here? When he says, let us, is this the royal we? Is this, you know, that there's an us mentality already in creation. I don't believe he's talking to the birds and the bees and he's not talking to the, the fish in the sea, which sounds like a great song about to start. But I don't think he's talking about the we there, let us do this. In fact, if you read what's going on here, and you read the fullness of Scripture, what you find out is this is a reference to the Godhead, to the Trinity, that you see God the Father talking to himself. 
God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all of which have parts in Genesis 1. Now, you have to read some to understand what's going on. You can clearly see God the Creator, God the Father, in, in the picture of Genesis 1. But you see in there in verse 1, the Spirit of God, verse 2, to the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Also, you see the Spirit of God, the breath of God, is what breathes life into creation. So where's Jesus come in? Jesus is considered the Word of God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among him. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word. So in other words, you have the Father who is enacting creation. You have Jesus who is the Word by which creation comes, and Spirit is even the means of all these things. They are all together. So what we see is that they are there before creation. There is a three-in-one unity, community, or even, dare I say, communion before universe was ever, ever created. John records that Jesus', Jesus prayer, that Jesus even prays that we will have something akin to this. John 17, verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through this message, that's us, to all of them, may, that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. Skipping to verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. What Jesus is saying is that the reason, the reason we are here is to share in something that was already God's, that God shared in himself, communion with himself, the full Godhead. Now you may be wondering, how does this apply to our act of communion? Well, the thing is, God has always been a communal being. He always has sought communion. It's not because he's lacking something, it's because he has something to share. The best illustration, I, although it's faulty, the best that I can give you is one of a question. Why do couples decide to have children? I mean, there's a lot of reasons, aren't there? And some of them are less than pure, and we'll be honest with that, but in the purest sense in the pure sense, why couples decide to have kids is because they have this yearning to share the love that they have for one another with another. They bring into the table another that can share in the love that they share. That's what's going on in the pure sense. For those of you that uh, thought, you know, maybe, for me, it really clicked with my second kid. Uh, first kid, I was like, oh, man, this is, you know, what I'm wanting for, and I'm so full of love. I felt like my love was maxed out, okay? You get, you with me there? Like, between my wife and my firstborn, my love was maxed out. And then we're going to be pregnant again. I'm like, ah, what, what's, what's this one going to get? I, mean, I have nothing left over, poor kid. And she's probably amening over here, but you know what I found out? My love for the other two didn't change. My love grew in capacity because I had something that was already within our family that could share. 
When children are born into a loving communion of the father and mother, they share in something that they did not create. Now, they can continue, but they did not create. They also are given something from the parents that they were not, the parents were not compelled to give. They don't have to have kids to love each other. That's how it works. But parents that choose to have kids, in a pure sense of the form, do it to love, to share the love that they have. Now, this Trinitarian community of God, of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, decided to create humanity, not on our own accord, not because we've done anything or will do anything that would merit our creation. It's simply because God had something to share with us because God is a communal being. His very nature is about community. And from the beginning, moving all throughout the story, God wants community. You see this most clearly in the two spiritual children of God, First is the children of Israel, and the second is the church. Israel did not create herself. We know that. God did not, he w- did not choose Israel because he was compelled to. He didn't choose Israel because they were the largest nation, because they were the strongest nation, or because of anything that they had done. In fact, quite the opposite. He chose Israel simply because he chose Israel. And he wanted to love them and to share his love with them. This is a communion aspect. This is what's going on in the community of God, is God desires people to be around him. He chooses people and expects them to act a certain way in such choosing so that they can remain in fellowship. This is why scripture, especially Old Testament, is pretty strong on saying, be holy as I am holy. Because we don't want to break the fellowship. We don't want to break the communion. Because once you have a taste of communion with God, you never want to go back. Once you see what it's truly all about, you never want to be disassociated with God. And that's how important communion is. Then moving forward to the church. The church did nothing to warrant the love of God. In fact, we messed up quite a bit. But God still chose the church because of of his immense, unmerited love. Because of his love for us and his love for the people that he can call his own. In fact, we see this as the ultimate goal. God desires to be in communion. We see this as the ultimate goal in Revelation uh, 21. Starting in three, communion, God has always desired. And one day, it will be fully realized. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. This is the ultimate understanding. This is the, the, the triumph of communion is that one day God's going to spread his table for us every meal, every day of our lives for the rest of eternity and says, come to the table. Come fellowship with me. And what a beautiful experience that's going to be. But in the middle, we're caught. Because in the middle, we don't always see communion with God. A lot of times what we see is a look at 
the altar. We see a look at my own sin, my own struggle, my own understanding. In fact, quite often, we don't see communion, communion in communion. What we see is pretty selfish. Now, you may give me some pushback and say, well, Mitch, I'm communing with God. I, ho- I hope so. But here's the thing. God's communing with all of us. So if you're only communing with God, you're missing part of the journey. You're missing part of this. I appreciate what Marcus said uh, before the words. He's saying it's not just here. It's not just in this city. It's not just in this country. It's not just in this continent. All over the world, this is what ties us. This is what connects us. We are fellowshipping one with another. Not because we're that good. Not because we've got it all figured out. But because God desires communion. And he wants his people to draw near to him and draw near to one another. In fact, uh, we could borrow a term from the, from the New Testament of what God wants. The New Testament term is quantania. You heard that term before, quantania? Some of you may have gone to a college that had a club named quantania. You may have some negative feelings about the word. I get that. But here's the deal. Quantania is an absolutely beautiful term. In Scripture, it means fellowship or, get this, communion. And it is the idea of this wonderful gathering together of unity. Ecclesia is a gathering of people. That's church. That's the word for that. Quanonia is a gathering of mentality that brings us into fellowship, that brings us into oneness. In other words, where more parts become one. Or as the Trinity likes to explain, I am. It's not three, it's one. So unified, such is the communion between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that they created you and I, and they welcome us to their table to experience the unity and the oneness that they already have. What a beautiful thing is happening! What a beautiful idea. And it's all because God invites us to his table. Now, the reason he can do that, I mentioned at the start that there's a difference between an altar and a table. There's a difference between the mentality of the two, but they interrelate. You could, would not be able to be invited to the table had it not been for the altar. Old Testament sacrifices that had the altar, we're going to look more at that next week and what that meant. But they couldn't join the fellowship of the table until they sacrificed at the altar. We couldn't join fellowship at the table until Christ was sacrificed at the altar for us. In other words, whenever we participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism, giving our lives to Him, when we do that, we are invited to a table. The table will not have significance or meaning without the altar. What I mean by that is someone unbaptized can participate in our communion. They can have a little pinch of bread and they can have the little sip of the juice. But they will not be in communion until they have given their lives at the altar. They may be with us, but they won't experience what communion of unity really is. But once we have the altar, then we remember 
the fellowship. Not only do we remember what has happened at the altar, but we go on to celebrate what has happened at the altar. We celebrate one with another through the fellowship of combining together into a beautiful thing God calls his church. And you're a part of it. So this morning, I'm not giving you anything groundbreaking or new. Basically, I'm, I'm setting up where we're going. I'm setting up that we're, we're going to be looking more deeply into this wonderfully, holy, sacred time. But this morning, you may have some concerns on your heart. You may have some struggles that you are dealing with, and you may also be in the camp that wants full communion but hasn't experienced baptism, hasn't experienced the washing away of your sins and been a part of his kingdom to experience that communion. So this morning, if you have a prayer, if you need someone to love you, then this is what, a, this is what happens at a table. We talk about it. Or if you want to be welcome at this table and join us in what God's kingdom calls his church, then this invitation's for you. Whatever you might need as a church, we want to talk. Would you let it be known? Come as we stand and as we sing together.